So Jesus gives us a parable today that has, I think, a, a lot of unanswered questions about it. Um, the first question is, why, why did the son, the first son that he went to, say he would not go to the vineyard? Why did he change his mind? We don't know. Now, maybe he said no because, well, he didn't want to. He didn't feel like it. He had a hard day already. He had something else planned. You know, maybe he thought it was unfair. Why is dad asking me and not that shiftless brother of mine? You know, uh, maybe it was, um, I don't know. Just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, feeling ill. Uh, should be a legitimate excuse for, for not going to work, you know. Um, so it's a mystery. We're not, we're not told. We're also not told why he changed his mind. Just that he did. He said he wouldn't go, and he went. And we're presented with a similar mystery with the, the other son as well. You know, why? We don't know why he said yes. We know he said yes. You know, was it because he really intended to do it, you know, and maybe got lazy later on, but he, he really intended to do it or he wanted to look good or just appease his father till he could get away and go after that party he was planning. You know, we don't know. We don't know what happened. All we know is that he didn't go. So in one sense, it seems kind of difficult to interpret this passage of Jesus, because with all these unknown questions about why one brother said he would and then didn't, and the other brother uh, said he wouldn't but did, you know, how do you, what, what's the lesson for us in here and all that, given all these, all these open questions? How do you, how do you draw a, a lesson out of this? And Jesus is silent. Jesus is silent. He does not give an explanation of the behavior of the two sons. And I think in a way that is the answer. If Jesus wanted us to know more, he would have told us. You know, he's the son of God. He knows what he's doing. It's kind of a basic proposition of Christianity. So given that he didn't tell us these things, it's left open for ourselves. But the one thing Jesus does tell us is the difference between the two sons is in the action that they ended up choosing. One choosing not to work, one choosing to work. And each saying the opposite of what they intended to do. That's all he gives us. And I think that in itself is, uh, is the lesson. So what do, we, what do we do with that? Well, I think one of the... You know, I think any of the possibilities that I mentioned of why the sons didn't do it actually could be a lesson for us. I mean, I think part of the reason Jesus leaves the gospel passage open is so that it can speak to us wherever we're at and whatever we're struggling with, you know. And I, I think one of the things that I want to, one of the possibilities I want to talk about has to do with the idea of feelings and their importance or lack of importance. You know, maybe the son who said, yeah, I'll go work, said that because he felt like it at the time. It's like, oh, yeah, this will make dad happy. This won't be so bad. I'll go pick some grapes, whatever. It'd be fine. You know, so he, he felt like doing it, and then he didn't feel like doing it, you know, for whatever reason. And so he decided not to. 
and the other brother, maybe he didn't feel like doing it, but then, well, he changed his mind and felt better. And I think one of the, you know, in our, in our culture today, one of the ways that people very easily get tripped up is going so much off of feelings in making choices. Now, it's not that feelings are irrelevant or unimportant or shouldn't be attended to, uh, you know, and that, and that we should just like forget they exist. Um, that's normally, that's, that's a, that's a bad road to go down. Um, but we do have to realize their shortcomings. You know, they don't always reflect, reflect reality just because we don't feel like doing something doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. You know, um, exercise is a great example. I never feel like exercising. You know, I, I, the last time I remember wanting to exercise, I was in seminary, like literally about a dozen years ago. That was the last time I, fe- I really looked forward to exercising for its own sake. You know, uh, I've exercised since then, in case you couldn't tell. Um, but it's not because I felt like it. Uh, and sometimes our feelings can, can lead us towards sin, you know, and they change. That's the other note of the parable here. Feelings change. And so if we're going to be serious about our relationship with Jesus and really about any relationship we have in life, I think we have to be prepared not to let our feelings be in charge. It doesn't mean we ignore them. It doesn't mean they don't get a say. But they can't be in charge. And I think this is really important, especially in, in thinking about where we're where we're at in the moral sort of appraisal of ourselves, an honest look at ourselves and, and where we stand with God and how that relationship is going. And there's a couple of ways that, that the feelings can sort of interfere with us seeing ourselves as we are. Um, in one way, the absence of good feelings, warm and fuzzies or whatever, can make us think that, well, we're actually far from God. We're not doing his will. Things aren't going well. When in fact, that isn't true. You know, oftentimes, and we know this in in the ordinary evaluation of life, oftentimes we, we judge love by when people choose to do things that they don't feel like doing. You know, anybody can play with a cute baby, but you gotta love that thing to get up at two in the morning, seven nights in a row to feed it, you know? That's how you know a mother loves her child. Not because she thinks it's adorable and is playing with it at two in the afternoon. Almost anybody could enjoy that. I mean, Hitler could probably enjoy that. You know, that doesn't, it doesn't make you a good person, you know. But to get up, to make that sacrifice night after night, that's, that's a real act of love. You know, and, and in a way, friends prove their loyalty by, by making sacrifices for us, you know. Uh, there's an old saying, maybe it's just an old saying in Chicago, but you know, a good friend is someone who will help you move a couch and your best friend is someone who will help you move a body. So, you know, the, the element of sacrifice, you know, involved there. But it's not, it's not about the feelings. It's about the choices. And so it's possible in our work and especially in our prayer to be doing really good works that are very pleasing to God to be having good prayer and for it to not feel great. 
And the flip side is also true. It's possible to have lots of really nice feelings about ourselves, about others, about our relationship with God, and things to not be going well uh, at all. I think a, a great sort of uh, historical example of this is the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and <clears throat> who I think was a terrible person. I mean, I just put it out there. You know, this is a man who, you know, had this uh, mistress who dearly loved him, who he never gave the benefit of marriage. She bore him five children, and he made her give every single one of them away and put them in an orphanage because he didn't want, you know, the little brats interfering with his great philosophical writing. You know, what he was doing was too important. The only time he ever made any effort to look for them was when, you know, his mistress was, was on her deathbed, and so he made it a half-hearted attempt. And, and the, French, the French orphanage system at this time after the revolution um, was abysmal. The mortality rate was like 50% for the first two years or five years. I mean, it was just terrible. Um, and yet, Rousseau thought he was the most moral man in Europe. And he said that. And when people confronted him about, you know, what was going on, he's like, oh, but, you know, who, who could accuse me of such things if they, could, if they could just know the warm and tender paternal feelings that I carry in my heart? And he, he had lots of warm and tender feelings for his children. He just had none of his children around, um, you know. And so... Our feelings don't necessarily make us don't necessarily make us good, even when we have very warm and tender feelings about people. And I think this brings us to the central point of Jesus's parable today. Being a Christian means loving God, and loving God means choosing to do what God asks us to do to go in the, into the vineyard. And it doesn't mean feeling like doing God's will. It just means doing it. And it's faith that allows us to know what, what the will is. But, but knowing is not enough. Knowing is not enough to be a good Christian. And in fact, knowing, the better you know, the more you're obligated to do. Because the more clear sight you have of what God's will uh, is. And so you think historically, you know, what, what this meant um, is that, you know, for the early Christian church, they, they stood out in a very clear way from the society that they, were, that they were surrounded by. You know, they refused to partake of pagan worship uh, of the emperor. Now, the, the Romans, um, in the religious sense, the Romans were very tolerant people. You know, whenever they conquered a place, they didn't, they didn't demand that people, you know, take all their gods and throw them into the river and only worship Roman gods. No, they said, oh, you, you have your gods? Great. The more the merrier. You know, you keep your gods. Um, just, we want you to add to your collection. You know, we want you to offer some incense to the emperor just to know that, you know, you're part of, you know, familia romana here, you know. And the Christians, like the Jews before them, you know, refused to participate in this worship. And, and the Jews actually had a special exemption. They were the only people in the empire allowed not to worship the emperor because the Romans figured out every time we try to make them do that, they, they, they cause a it causes a rebellion. All right, so 
fine. They can have their one God, whatever. Um, but that privilege was not extended to the Christian church because the Christians were a new religion, and Romans didn't like new religions. New religions meant political instability, probably a civil war. They weren't into that. So Christians did not get the exemption to worship Jesus. And that meant, that meant in their refusal to, to worship the emperor, that they became traitors and persecuted, crucified for, for three centuries. Very visible. But even less so, I mean less dramatically, maybe more so day to day, part of that witness was showing up for Sunday Mass. The thing is, if you look at the history of the first three centuries of the empire, persecution was not a constant. You know, it, it came in in waves. You know, sometimes you get a, you get a, you know, pissy emperor and he'd come in and start a, a persecution. But sometimes, oftentimes when the next emperor came in, he'd want to, he'd want to make some friends. And so he said, all right, we'll stop the persecution of the Christians, get them on our side. So you never quite knew as a Christian when the next emperor was going to sit on the throne and the next wave of persecution was going to break out. And so going to Sunday Mass, even in a time of peace, was a risk. Because who knows what could happen. Your neighbors all knew where you were going. But it was a public, it was a public witness. It was a public choice to follow God. And then there was what I'll call uh, another aspect, I think what I would call familial morality. You know, so the idea... You know, in, in the Roman culture where the man was basically the only one who counted in the family, could kill his wife and kids, you know, at will. Um, the Christian notion that, you know, there was an equality between husband and wife, that the laws against adultery applied both to the husband and the wife, that was new um, and weird from a Roman perspective. You know, and, and then, of course, all the other um, sort of sexual morality that, that went along uh, with that. Um, basically anything the Christians wouldn't do, the, the Romans were fairly fond of. Um, that was kind of it. And so you had this different family life in Christian times. And finally, care of the poor. You know, I, just one example would be the adoption of abandoned children, you know, oftentimes taken into Christian households. Because at the end of the day, it was about the choices that had to be made. You know, and those choices weren't always easy. People didn't always feel like it. But there is the sense of what was important was the choices that, that were made. And so that's the challenge for us. What are the choices that we're, we're going to make? And I think oftentimes it's, it's the choices that we make when we don't feel like it that are most important for conversion. You know, the times you show up for Mass when you have a lot of homework to do, that's when the real conversion happens, you know? The times when, you know, you walk to churches, we'll be doing soon enough at St. Francis when the weather gets cold, you know, and it's snowing outside. You know, you're like, all right, suit up and trudge through the snow. That's, that's where the conversion happens. And trying to be nice to say nice things about the people that we don't like. That's where the conversion happens.
And that's when we do the Father's will and draw closer to the Lord. But one final point I want to make is we, we have to keep in mind that doing God's will is, first of all, God's work in us and not our work. You know, we're not Pelagians. We don't think we can earn our own way to salvation just by our own force of will. If we're going to be like the good son who eventually went out into the vineyard, God's going to have to help us. And that, in, at the end of the day, it's really not, it's not possible to live Christian life without grace. When I was growing up, I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with this, but when I was growing up, you know, around, uh, usually around Christmas time, there was a, a sort of ad campaign that would be put on, I think normally in Washington, D.C., uh, by the, the local atheists there. And it was the campaign that said, you know, like, people can be good without God. You know, that was, that was their slogan or something like that. Good without God. Um, and in a way, it's sort of a, 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 a theoretical argument that it's possible to be good without God. We can be good without him. We can be good without him. But in a way, I think the more important question is, are we good without him? And there was a, a famous study that was done called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, which is a very in-depth look, that, in-depth look at charitable giving uh, in the United States. And they found that religious practice, practice was the strongest indicator or predictor of charitable giving. Those who spent time to worship God and be in his presence were also the people who spent time and money and talent to help other people. And they said, um, they said it, was, it was interesting when they looked at this in-depth study. They, you know, they said um, they found that people who volunteer at secular organizations were a bit undergiving. In other words, if you only volunteered for secular causes... Chances are you gave less money. So you gave your time and your talent, but not your treasure. But they found that religious people who volunteered gave their time and their talent and also were overgivers. They gave more of their treasure. And they also found, and this is the most interesting part, that people who attended religious services were the most generous to secular charities. And it all goes back to that principle that you can't give what you don't have. If we're not spending time receiving from the Lord, how can we, how can we have love to give to other people? So I want to leave you with the last line of the psalm that we heard today. So go ahead and close your eyes and, and I'll leave you with this beautiful verse. Good and upright is the Lord. Thus he shows sinners the way. He guides the humble to justice and teaches the humble his way.